you've joined us for the first time this week, I want to add my welcome to Dave's. It's great uh, to have you here. Uh, We've been looking over the last few weeks at the overarching storyline of the Bible, uh, at creation and and the God who made all things, and then how mankind rebelled against that God, and how he promised to bless through one man, Abraham, all nations on earth, and he gave a promise of land, of, of a great name and blessing, and then how that promise was the controlling story throughout the rest of the Old Testament, through David, who we thought maybe this was it. Maybe he was the king who would lead God's people forever. And then came Solomon, and through both of them we saw that they were just like us, just like Adam and Eve, rebellious against our God, not treating him as he deserved, that we, like them, need God's forgiveness. And from that point on throughout the the Old Testament, we see this through the prophets, promise of one who would come, who would deal with our sin and rebellion, who would take our brokenness and who would lead us as God's people forever. Well, this week, as we look at this section of Colossians, we see really a concentrated section around the high point of who this Jesus is and what he's done for us. And there's two questions that I want us to think through this morning, two questions that really have defined the way I have lived, that have shaped the last 35 years of my life, that have shaped what I live for, my present, my future, my hopes, my dreams, my plans, and my passions. Two questions that really have defined me. And I can guarantee you today that no matter what your take on these two questions is, they will define you and your future as well. Because your life will be determined by your answer to these two questions. And here they are. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And number two, what has he done for you? Who is Jesus and what has he done for you? In 2013, two uh, Cambridge University professors, uh, Skinner and Ward, published a book. Uh, the picture of it's on, on the screen there. And, and the book explored the most significant figures of world history. And used a whole heap of algorithms on, on the internet to work out, within Western history at least, who was the greatest. Well, they assessed people from Aristotle through to Einstein. They plugged them through this, this mathematical modeling. And they came to the conclusion that the most influential figure from human history was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, neither professor, uh, neither professor claims any Christian faith. Uh, it was a Cambridge University Press study that was put out. What is the likelihood that a man from a tiny little town like Galilee, you know, just, it's kind of like Narawahia, not, not even Hamilton, right? What's the, the likelihood that someone from there, with absolutely no influence, no pedigree seemingly, would become, according to this university study, the most influential man in human history. No matter what your take on Jesus is, he's worth at least checking out. He's worth looking at the claims to see if he is the pinnacle of human history. What we've seen over the last six weeks as we've looked at the promises of God is that this God has been pointing forward to a king who would come. He's been showing us things that would happen about Jesus. And they end up all being about Jesus. So to that first question, who is Jesus? Uh, we see in this passage, in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, we're told. But what does it mean to be the image of the invisible God? 
In Genesis chapter 2, God made man and woman, Adam and Eve, to be in the image of God, to represent Him on the earth, to rule this earth under Him and to fly God's flag on earth saying, God is King. We are living under Him, His way. He's the one who controls our life. But it wasn't long before that flag was changed and Adam and Eve put up their own and said, we can choose what we want to do. We want to be little gods and we're booted out of the garden. And from that moment on, humanity has not been in right relationship with God. The world around us is broken and isn't how it should be. We all experience that. But when Jesus comes on the scene... Those around him, those who knew him best, not some people from a distance, but those who live their life with him, claim he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, this is what the writer of Hebrews says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God in the flesh, in all his fullness, in every way. Uh, The idea of firstborn doesn't really get that much these days in our family. Um, But in this time, the firstborn was the one who would inherit the the, the family line and tradition. The one who would lead the family. Uh, Psalm 89 says this, thinking about the firstborn and looking forward to a, a promise of the promised king that would come. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. See, You can't read the Bible and say Jesus was just a good guy. You can't read the Bible and say he was just a a moral teacher. You definitely wouldn't look at his earthly reign and say he was the greatest ruler of all time. The guy died three years into his kind of public ministry. But what we see the Bible saying is that this Jesus might be someone you never expected him to be. That he is far greater than an earthly ruler, far greater than a moral teacher or God or someone to follow after. That this Jesus is the one who is God. He is God the Son and he is the one who created everything. Have a listen to verse 16. Paul says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. It's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Everything that is, everything you can see and everything you can't was created by Jesus through him and for him. Now, as I kind of read through that, it amazes me that the claim is that this one has made all things. I don't know how often you dwell on that as you look to the stars in the sky, as you look at the things on earth that are so great, to remember they aren't accidents. They were put here by the God who made you. But one of the things that stands out for me in this section is, and it kind of blows my mind a bit, is this idea that the rulers and authorities were created by him. Who are these rulers and authorities, these thrones and dominions? Well, what we know from this passage is that they are all from Christ. For all things were created through Him and for Him. And this is what kind of spins me out. God the Father, through the work of the Son, created everything. Acknowledging even these rulers and authorities, maybe these spiritual realms, stuff that people don't even talk about. That we're like, oh, what, what is this? He knew that He would create them. He knew that in creating them, that some of them would rebel. 
but that in all of this, it would bring glory and praise. That people would stand back and go, you are amazing, God. Paul wants to make clear at this point that when Christians feel small and vulnerable and they hear about these hostile thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, that they know beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ has authority to rule over every single one of them. There is nothing that these rulers and authorities can do apart from his sovereign permission. And that includes Satan himself. So often I don't think that God is in control over him. But he is. Job chapter 1 reminds us, very well the Lord told Satan, everything Job owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. You see here this inner workings of what's going on between the father and Satan and that, that, that Satan is limited by what God says. He can go only so far and no further. One of the great reformers and really the catalyst of the European Reformation, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, I love it, he, he refers to Satan as God's Satan. Every time he talks about Satan in his writing, he says, uh, and God's Satan said, just reminding us, just remembering that God is sovereign over him. God is in control over him. Don't get me wrong, Satan and his cohorts have real power. But here, Paul is pointing out the one who has the greatest power. And his name is Jesus. There is nothing these rulers and authorities can do apart from his sovereign permission. Who is Jesus? Paul says he's the one who created everything. He's the one who created you and me. But it doesn't just stop there. We hear more of this. We hear of the author of life's purpose and what, per- what life was about. Have a look at verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. Why are we here? What's the purpose of life, of relationships, of living, of family, what, what, of, of, of enjoyment? What, what is the purpose in life? The Bible is saying it. It's all for Jesus. It's all for Him. Everything that came into being, everything that is, exists to display the greatness of Jesus. What I want you to do today is, some of us will have heard this stuff before. Some of us this will be new, but I want us to sit back and think, have you seen how high Jesus is? How powerful and good He is? Has that changed the way you think about life and your purpose and your meaning? That means nothing on this universe exists for its own sake. Not me, not you, not any ruler or any any kind of king or monarch. None of them exist for their own sake. They exist to serve Jesus. From the deepest valley that the world knows, the Marinara Trench, through to the top of Everest, the, the smallest particle to the biggest star, the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, the ugliest cockroach, to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Jesus more fully known. Do you believe that? Does that shape the way you think about what you were here for? When you see Jesus for who he is, for who these New Testament authors saw he was, it changes the way you think about everything. And the question for us is, have we seen this Jesus? Is that the Jesus that you follow? Is that the Jesus that you reject, maybe? 
Have you seen who he is and does he change the way you live? Not only did he make everything, but Paul continues, he sustains everything. He didn't just set the world spinning and make it and go, there you go, off you go. But he's the one who is sustaining it day by day. Like, I've done this before, but it, it continues to blow me away. I want everyone in the room to take a deep breath right now. Ready? Breathe in. You could only do that because Jesus sustains you right now. Because he said yes to your next breath and your next heartbeat. That's the claim of the Bible that all things hold together by him. See that in verse 17? By him, all things hold together. The fact that gravity holds you onto the chair right now, the fact that a plane stays in the sky when it's flying, is all because Jesus holds all things together. Without him, the universe would just simply fall apart. The very fact that we can even live is because Jesus holds everything together. The basis, the basis of science, of, of empirical research, requires right, that the universe has order. That you know, if we, if we do an experiment and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, then we can see that there's probably something happening. It, it, it requires us to see that there are constants and laws. And that those constants and laws in the universe are exactly that, constant and laws. They're repeatable and reliable. Do you know the odds against the universe existing by chance are incredibly unthinkable? That those constants and laws that are there, that would just happen by random chance? Someone worked out the probability of that, of just the constants and laws that we have that makes us be able to exist where we are, is like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. I don't even know what quintillion means, but it's a lot. I think it's 10, no, 15, quint, 15? Anyway, someone with math degree can tell us later. Um, really? That's an accident? This stuff just exists just because it happened? According to Colossians 1, all of this is only possible because there is a creator and a sustainer of the universe. And he holds it together. And then Paul gets a little bit personal about this Jesus. You kind of see another aspect of him as he holds him out to say, have you seen him? He is the head of the church. He's the head of those who are gathered together who trust in him. He is the head of this church, being a local church, but the heavenly church, the church that is in heaven, gathered around the throne. Uh, he is what we are to be about as Christians who are part of a local church. He is our senior pastor. Uh, all the pastors of Auckland Via are under shepherds, under Jesus. He is the one who leads the church and we sit under him. So Paul says to us, have you seen Jesus? He is everything. It's no wonder the Old Testament had all these great promises that were coming about one who would come. And when he comes, he's even higher than we thought. He's all the images brought together in one. Jesus is everything. And without him, there's nothing. Without Jesus, there is nothing. No purpose, no life. You can't take your next breath. No future, no hope, no... Do you see how great this picture of him is? Who is Jesus to you? I don't want to believe it just because a, a piece of paper says it. 
even if it's one of the most historically verifiable pieces of paper known from antiquity, what we see here is, as I read the history books, as I make sense of the evidence, not proof but evidence, is that Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be. If that's something that you want to check out, that you're here looking at the claims and thinking through who he is, come to Explaining Christianity this week. Uh, write it on your Connect card now. Go, yep, I mean, I want to come and check out these claims. As someone you're talking through this stuff with, invite them as well. This is too important. Without Jesus, there is no life, no forgiveness, no hope, no future, no breath. Well, if you thought that view of Jesus was impressive, I want to show you what he's done. He definitely is impressive. He is the king overall. But the second thing that I want us to look at is what Jesus has done for us. Because it's here you see that the amazing act of what he's done, that this king would do this for us. But before we understand what he's done, we need to understand ourselves first. Have a look at verse 21, chapter 1 of Colossians. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because... Of your evil actions. Let me read this to you again. And it's talking about God here. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions toward God. If you're going to pick anyone in the universe to be hostile against, surely Jesus would be the last one, wouldn't he? The one who maintains your very breath, who could stop it in a second who speaks and creation comes into being, who is in control of everything. Yet this is saying that we, you and I, are in a position of being alienated from him and hostile in our minds. Why? Not because of something that Satan has done or someone else has done, but because of your and my evil actions. Now, as I read that, I don't feel like I'm hostile. I don't know about you. I don't feel like I get up each day and load my machine gun ready to shoot God. Or his people. I don't feel like I, I deliberately set out to go, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you. But all throughout my life, I make little decisions to remove God from his position and to put me in his place, to, make the, to call the shots for myself, to live my way. Paul's been clear in other books that he's written, particularly in Romans, that every single one of us is in the same position of being Hostile toward God. We have all turned our backs on God. I want us to feel the weight. I want, I want to feel the weight of that right now. You and I have turned our backs and said, I want nothing to do with the life-giving God. Imagine you said that to your parents. I want nothing to do with you. Thanks for being who you are, but I just don't want to treat you as my parents. No, no disrespect. Imagine how they would feel. Imagine saying that then to a perfect God who has only ever loved us. It is hostility. If Jesus is who this passage claims him to be, then we have taken command of what is rightly his and we've booted him out. I've um, told this story before, but it's just so powerful, I think. <laughs> a friend of mine was, um, well, it's a guy I know, he's not really a friend, he's dead now. Um, but I've chatted with him a few times, just for clarity's sake. Um, he once got in, an invite to Buckingham Palace. 
He was friends with someone who was kind of high up there. And so you got an invite into Buckingham Palace and to get like a private tour of Buckingham Palace. And he got on this tour to go into the throne room of the Queen of England. Now, I don't know if that's part of the normal tour or not. I've never been to Buckingham Palace. It might be. But my friend thought that while he's here with this, you know, this guy he knows, the kind of chummy with, while he's here, I'll just get one opportunity to ask, right? So he went and asked the guy, look, do you mind if you could just take a quick photo of me sitting on the throne? Right? Why wouldn't you? What a great opportunity to kind of go, hey, I could sit on the throne of the Queen of England. How great would that be? And I remember him saying, as he told this story, uh, the response of the, of the guard. It was something like this. Mr. Chapman, I don't mind if you sit in the royal throne, but the almond waters of Her Majesty's royal palace and fortress, a.k.a. Beefeaters, mind very much, as, as does their sovereignty, Her Majesty the Queen. And should you try and get more than one metre closer than you are right now, the only throne you will find yourself on is the water closet in Scotland Yard. The throne is the seat of power of the British Empire. Now, the British Empire might not be what it once was, but it is the symbolic place of rule for the United Kingdom. For anyone else to sit on that throne would be a paramount to a coup, an overthrow, a sudden and illegal seizure of government. But here's the thing. The moment we take our lives into our own hands, the moment we set the rules for how we live and what is right and wrong, we have staged a coup on the creator of the universe. We have turned our back on him. And that is not going to end pretty. For he is far more powerful than the Queen of England. If God is real, then the reality of our rejection of God's rule and reign on our lives is the same reality of the seriousness of its consequences. We deserve to have our lives stopped. Those benefits that he has provided us taken away. Have a look at verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Let me read it again. Knowing the reality of where we stand before this God and what we have done and what we deserve. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body, talking about Jesus, through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. It is actually possible to be reconciled with the creator of the universe, to to have those things that we have done forgiven, wiped clean, never to be held against us, never to, for us to suffer the, the consequences of what we have done. That is amazing news if it is true, isn't it? If there is a God and He sustains us and is in control of the whole universe and we have rejected Him, yet He's allowed us to be forgiven, that is phenomenal news. See, unlike us, Jesus never tried to attempt a coup. He never tried to ascend the throne, never turned his back on God. 
Adam turned his back on God. Abraham turned his back on God. David turned his back on God. Solomon, everyone through human history from Adam onwards, which is you and me and everyone else on the universe except for Jesus, have turned their back on God. The Old Testament is, a, is kind of a picture of all this. See, it's not just a catalogue of people who couldn't be perfect. But it's a real history of people longing for a king who could. Someone who would come and fix the problem between us and God, reverse the effects of the fall. Ezekiel talks about changing our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh that obey God's word. We were longing for a day that God would breathe life back into us. And that day has come, says Paul, with the life and death of Jesus. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he did the most extraordinary thing ever done. He cried out on that cross that day, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The innocent one who never turned his back on on the Father had been forsaken by his dad. He was suffering the punishment that you and I, the guilty ones, deserved. He was reconciling us to God, paying the penalty that we had done. I want to show you an illustration that helps. That I, We do this at Explaining Christianity. If you come, you'll see it there as well. But just imagine this was a book. Hey, you don't have to imagine very much. Um, let's say it was a book of every time that I had um, thought, said, or done something that was rebellious to God. A catalogue of, of my life. Uh, and just imagine for a moment, say, God was the light. This puts me in the dark. There's a catalogue of things that I have done wrong that separate me from God's goodness. A catalogue of things that I've said, I want nothing to do with you, God. And they're all here. And if God is just, then I need to suffer the consequences for these. But when Jesus died on that cross, he had never done anything wrong. He had never done any of this. The catalogue of his life was treating his heavenly father perfectly. And when Jesus died on that cross, he took our sin on him. But not just mine, the sin of the whole world. So that you and I could stand forgiven as he was. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ died for sin, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's what's happened at the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so we have the hope of this news of what he is, what he's done for us. The hope of the gospel. It's not just wishful thinking. I'd like to think that maybe Jesus will give me a better life in the future. There's real evidence of who he is and what he's done in history, in in the pages of the Bible, outside the pages of the Bible even. And what this news about Jesus gives is certainty for the future. And we're going to look at that next week. Because of Jesus' death in our place, we can be assured that we can be forgiven if we trust in him. If we put our lives in in, in his hands, if we come and say, you are my king, I'm sorry. Has anyone ever done anything like that for you? Anything even near that? The perfect God who created all, sustains all, comes and dies for his creation. So that we could be forgiven. Not because there's something good about us but because we're rebellious brutes who want nothing to do with him and are trying to live lives without him, he comes anyway. 
How great is the forgiveness of our God? If Jesus is who he says he is, and if he has done what the Bible says he has done, then this is news that changes my life, changes what I live for, what matters most to me. Life with God forever is possible. Forgiveness has been offered to you and to me right now. The question is, why wouldn't you accept it? Sure, you might need to look at the facts and see if this weighs up and see if there are any other reasons why. But I tell you, if, why would you not seek to see if this is the truth? See, it's no surprise to me that Jesus is the most influential man on the planet because he is God the Son. He made it all. Of course, he's the most influential one. What a shame it would be to walk away from hearing this and not even look into it. Or to hear it and say, yeah, I know that, and just get on with your normal life. Not let this picture of Jesus change the way we live tomorrow. I'm guilty of that. My hunch is you are too. So Paul says at the end of this section, in verse 23, this gospel, this news has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This news so changes Paul's life that this is what he lives for. He is a servant of this news and this God. Not in order to be saved, but because of what God has already done for him. See, there is no sweeter message of hope in all the world, no better news than the news of what Jesus has done for us. I saw in the paper this week that uh, someone woke up um, with their, their lotto ticket and had won something like $7.5 million. That's a lot of money. Like, that's pretty amazing news. I was like, whoa, what could you do with that? And I was kind of cataloging the things. Here's, but here's even greater news. You deserve to be dead, as do I, Rowan. <laughs> Yet God has sent his son who has died in our place and offered you life forever, forgiveness. My life doesn't look like I got out of bed and won the lotto. Does yours? It should look even better. Doesn't mean we're always got to be chirpy and happy, but oh, don't we have a wonderful hope in Jesus? Doesn't all of the Old Testament pointing forward to him show you the richness of who he is and what he's done and what is on offer for us? The news of this gospel means that you can go to bed tonight, this very night. Knowing that every sin you have ever committed and ever will commit is forgiven. Washed away. Dealt with at the cross 2,000 years ago, never again to be aired because in Jesus it has been paid in full. That's the free offer of the gospel. That's what God was talking about when he promised to Abraham that you would have a great land, great blessing, and it would be a blessing to all nations on earth. It was through the true Jew, Jesus, that in him we might have this hope and future. How will the news of Jesus change the way you live today? Do you need to maybe come to him before your heavenly father and because of what Jesus has done, repent. Confess that you haven't lived a life with him as the center. 
Do you maybe need to come and accept his forgiveness and recognize that he is the king and strive to make him the king of your life? Not so that you can be forgiven, but because you have been forgiven. Because his death has already been paid. Do you maybe need to come and check out Jesus? I want to say this morning, whatever you do, don't go away and miss the significance of who this Jesus is. So many of us treat Jesus like a hitchhiker in life. Driving along the road, we're like, oh, this Jesus guy on the side looks pretty good. We invite him into the car and we just keep going. Like an added option we can have, an extra passenger in the life of Rowan. When you recognize who he is, we just need to stop the car and get out and say, you drive. <laughs> you made life. You show me where to go. You are the king. I thank you for what you've done for me. Please be my king. Why don't we pray that together right now?